tonight. Glad you're here. Uh, we're going to take a few moments pray and ask God's blessing our time, His help, His direction, His power, and uh, then get going with our Bible study. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, just an opportunity to meet and we thank you for your presence here. We've gathered in the name of Jesus. And uh, so here you are in our midst. Uh, we welcome you to our midst. We ask that you would empower our time. We ask that you would anoint our time. I just pray revelation over our time. I just ask that we'd be inspired. Pray you'd breathe into this time together. So, Father, uh, have your way. And I just ask that we would yield to the Holy Spirit tonight. We would yield to your direction. We would yield to uh, what it is that you want to do here in our midst. So, uh, we give you thanks. We give you praise. And we give you, and we say, have your way. Uh, have your way in our midst. I pray you'd open up your word to us. I pray we'd have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit's saying. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S P E A K P I P E. Dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. It could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. It could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message. And we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 12. And while you're opening, uh, we have a message that we received uh, either this past week or the week before. And so I'm going to play that for you. Laura from Yangzhou. I enjoy listening to all the Monday night Bible studies. And I'm going to use this to have a short teaching tonight in the Yangzhou kingship where Aaron was leading. And thank you for updating all the videos and uh, audios. Thank you. All right, Laura. Thanks for uh, contacting us, and uh, just know we are praying for you and for all the people there in the kinship, and we appreciate all that you're doing and the time, the effort, and everything that's going on there. So uh, thank you, and uh, we're glad we could be of some help or assistance or inspiration, however it is that we're going about it with what you're doing there in Young Joe. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's look in Romans chapter 12. I need a volunteer to read verse 9. If you need a Bible, there's some located on the tables. Romans 12 and verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. 
All right, thanks. Uh, what you're seeing here, Paul is giving some instruction to the church. You can go back to the beginning of Romans 12 and see uh, what he talks about there. Uh, if you look in verse 3, what would you say that, just uh, read verse 3 of Romans 12 to yourself, what would you say the theme of verse 3 is? Anyone? Okay. What else? What else do you see in verse 3? Romans 12, 3. Okay. Anything else? What do you see in verses 1 and 2? Okay, is a reasonable spiritual act of worship. Okay. But what is your spiritual act of worship in Rom in Romans one or twelve one and two? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So self sacrifice, uh, giving of yourself, um, presenting yourself for use. All right, that's a form of worship according to that. Uh, verse three, what we hear, grace. We heard um, what else did we hear? Being humble. All right. Uh, the idea of faith is also infused in that. Down to verse 9, he begins to talk about love. And you're seeing a series of directives that he's giving. And and so he gets down to verse 9, and he he speaks of love. And it begins, let love. Let love. Or allow love. Or this is the way love should be. And we should allow this to happen in and through our lives. So, um, it, it's interesting because love has a lot of different, uh, or takes on a lot of different meanings in our language. Uh, we use the word love for a lot of things. Uh, we use the word love for a strong relationship and bond between two people. Uh, we use the word love for a strong relationship and bond in families. We use the word love uh, when we talk about uh, what we like to eat for snacks. Because um, you can love chocolate in our language. You can love whatever. And so because we use it for a lot of different things, uh, as what happens with a lot of words that we use in various contexts, it really loses meaning in, in, in some senses. Because we, we use it so much and we use it for so many things that... Uh, it, it doesn't carry the same strength of meaning as, say, a word that's used for a specific kind of love would carry in a different language because it's exclusively used for certain things. And other languages have very specific words for, say, a strong emotion between two people. Or they may have a specific word uh, that would indicate a strong emotion that one might have in general for... Uh, loving other people, like in society. Uh, uh, Greek has uh, just several words for love. One that means brotherly love, which is differentiated from romantic love, which could be differentiated from sexual love. And so you have all these different ideas in, in all of these different ways that these words can be used, but they're exclusive to certain specific ways that we would use the word love, which we don't have in our language. And so, being very specific, what we're talking about here, the idea of love in this passage that Paul is using is the idea of affection. And it's a very specific word 
In the Greek, it's a compound word. And what it signifies is the affection. And this is going to sound weird, but I want you to stick with me for a second. It's the affection. This is literally what the word means. It's the affection that animals, by instinct, bear toward their young. That's what it is. So in other words, it, it's more of, the, if you think of how animals will take care of their young, most animals will take care of their young. In other words, uh, it is a strong, it is with delight, it's warm, uh, preferring one another, that kind of an idea that uh, that's the kind of affection that he's talking about. And I know it's weird because it's animals, but... I think there's something very basic about that and there's something very instinctual about that and there's something very natural about that that that's really what he's looking for. That's what he's trying to speak to in us as believers. That there should be something instinctual in us. There should be something that the work of the Holy Spirit has been doing in us. Something that God has been doing in us. When the Bible talks about it, it's like we love... Because He first loved us. That's the work that God's doing in us. So that we can love. That's the work that God does in us so that we can show that kind of an affection toward others. He showed that to us. And He poured that out into our lives. And He's done this work in us so that we can therefore develop or allow that to develop in and through our lives as a natural outflow of the work that He's done in me so you think about the work that God's doing in you and the love that he pours on you well there's a reason for that there's a reason for that kind of love that he's been pouring into you that kind of love that he's been making evident in your life and and producing in your life is so that something will come forth from that something natural something warm something instinctual that will begin to come forth from that as we allow his love to really take root in us because I talk to people, it's like, well, depending on where you come from, you might be more lovey-dovey than somebody else in in your actions. You know, there's certain cultures that are more, when I say lovey-dovey, I don't mean that in any negative way, just they're more affectionate in, in, in the way that they express themselves to one another. And so there are certain cultures that are like that. There are certain parts of the country in, in the United States that are more affectionate. I remember the first time I went down to, to, to see my in-laws, down, they're, they're from New York City. So my in-laws are from the Bronx. And so I went down to see them, and one of the first things is that June's mom kissed me. Uh, people don't kiss me, all right? And I didn't even understand that. I mean, it's like you get kissed in the... I don't even know what to do. I was standing there, and that's just a normal greeting. But I don't come from that culture. I had never been a part of that culture. I'd never been in that culture. And so... There's this greeting that came up, you know, I got a kiss and a kiss or whatever it was. And I didn't even know how to react to that because that's just not a natural part of the way I grew up. And there's certain, there's other culture and other subgroups that do things like that. And so it, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, as a, as a group of Christians here, over the years, we hug here in church. All right, that took a little getting used to, too. <laughs> All right. Now, I know I started the church, so I guess I could have put an end to the hugging right away. But it seems like there, there's a certain uh, amount of and there's a certain need for some wholesome and some real 
and some sincere connection in a physical way between people. And so we hug. And, you know, the Bible talks about greet one another with a holy kiss. And there's, there's things that the Bible talks about in the way that people would greet one another within the context of whoever they were and whatever part of the world they were in in the Bible. But that's how they greeted one another. And, and kind of as a joke, I had a friend when I was, we were all new believers when I was in college. And every time he would, <laughs> this guy would see me, he would kiss me on the cheek. Because the Bible said, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I didn't return the kiss on the cheek, but he would do it every time. It was just a joke, but it was so funny because like, people would look at us. We'd be in the student union or somewhere like that, and he'd just kiss me. And uh, things were different back then. People didn't do that. So, um, yeah. So what are we used to? I don't know. You may be used to uh, displays of affection that maybe some of the rest of us aren't. And, and that's, not really, that's not really the bottom line of what I'm talking about. Because what I'm really talking about here isn't just a form. and isn't just a, a cultural norm. But this is a sincere work that God wants to do in His people. And it's a work of love that He's already begun by pouring His love into us so that it would be an outflow from us toward others. And that's the work that He wants to do. Now, some of us may be more open to that because of where we came from, but it's not exactly the same thing. Because I'm not looking, and, and I don't think Paul's talking about trying to develop some kind of a, just a, a way of doing things. I don't think he's looking at, oh, well, we're just going to come up with a new form of greeting or something like that. He's looking for something sincere. And that's what's being described in this verse. It's something that is more than just a salutation. It's something that's more than just the way things are done wherever we came from or whatever culture we came out of. But it's something that pours forth from our hearts. Something that God's already begun in us and doing in us that's a natural outflow of that. You know, and I go back to the word that's being used here. And it's a very literal word that's being used here, like instinctual. It's instinctual. It's something that God does in us that changes us right in our DNA, right in our nature. And this is the outflow of that. It's an affection toward others, a godly affection toward others. And I just really believe that's a work that God is doing. And, and I want to point it out that way. I want to point it out that way because I don't want you to feel like when you hear something like this, you've got to gin this up somehow. You've got, to, you've got to produce this somehow in your own strength because that's not what God's saying. He's not talking about just you know, creating a new form and just doing it because it's that form like that kid was doing with me in college. He created a form to kiss me on the cheek every time he saw me because the Bible said greet one another with a holy kiss. Was that coming from his heart? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it was a joke. But it was a salutation. It was a way that we greeted one another. And it was something that happened. But that's not really what this is talking about. This time is something that's going to come out of us, but in reality. Something that's going to come out of us, but in sincerity. Something that's going to come out of us, but 
It's not going to be something that is pretend. It's got to be something that's real. And and that's really the work that I see God doing. That's really the work that I see God accomplishing in us. And because when the Bible talks about, it, it's like, well, we love because He first loved us. Well, that's the reason He He had to first love us, and we didn't know how to love really. We didn't really know how to do it. He's teaching us how to do that. He's showing us how to do that. Anyone who wants to, who has a desire to make his words a true picture of his emotion, and I want you to think about what I mean by that. If you want to make your words, what you say to people, a true picture of your emotion, you have to take heed to what Paul says here. Because people talk, but words don't necessarily mean anything. They don't necessarily really reflect what's going on inside of us. We've all become pretty good at feeling one way and saying something else. We're all pretty good at that. That's societal norms. How are you doing today? Fine. You know why? Because they didn't really ask you that because they really want to know how you're doing. And you know that. And so because you know that they really don't care about how you're doing, you answer with a societal norm saying, I'm okay, even if you're not okay. We're all pretty good at that. But that's not a true reflection of how we feel. But we do it every day. We do it multiple times a day. It's a societal expectation that that's what we're going to do because we really just don't care how the other person is doing when we ask. That's the problem with a salutation. That's the problem with just saying the same things over and over again. It's something that we do. It's a form of something, but it just really doesn't matter, at least to most of us. And so we ask the question, and that's it. We expect the answer. Okay, fine, great. Now, if somebody trips you up and they're like, yeah, I'm not doing too good today. Oh, that, you know, you know, how you react to that? Try that with somebody. You know what they're going to say? They're going to be like, well, things will get better. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, they don't know what to say. That's what happens. In my, uh, when I have an intern and I bring an intern in. One of the first things I talk about in our meetings, I'm going to say, I'm going to ask you how you're doing when we meet. And I have to specify, like, now I really want to know how you're doing. So I need you to tell me how you're actually doing when I ask you how you're doing at the beginning of the meeting. Now, it's going to seem like it's a salutation and then I don't care, but I'm telling you ahead of time that I do care, and so I want you to answer me honestly. Now I have now you think about it, you gotta go through that kind of an expl- that that kind of an explanation just to let people know you're asking an honest question. Well that's how ingrained in us those kind of salutations are. How's it going good? What's up? Good. Yeah. In fact, in the nineties we had it down to just a nod and, and a moving of the eyebrows. Like that, see? So that meant everything was good. Than not. Yeah. So, so we need to take heed if we just want, if we really, if we really, we really are interested, really are interested in in allowing our words to reflect 
something that's real. And I think it's important that we all have the capacity to do that. That our words should reflect what's really going on. And there's a time and there's a place for that to be expressed. And we need to be open to that, but we at least need to be able to do it. And, and I'm afraid some of us just aren't even able to do that. If we were given the opportunity and we are saying, all right, well, tell me how you feel. I think some of us just wouldn't be able to do that. We, we wouldn't be able to put into words what we're feeling. And, and I think we need to be able to put it into words. I think that's something that's important that we're able to do that. Even if we're just writing a journal to be able to express ourselves verbally as to how we're feeling. Even if we're just writing in a book that no one else is going to read just to be able to do that. Much less be able to tell somebody, another human being, how we're feeling. So the first thing he talks about with love, he's like, well, first off, let love be honest. Let love arise from a genuine and deep emotion. Not in pretense, but in reality and sincerity. And even sincere people will sometimes, and, and I want you to think about this, they will use words in slight excess of their feelings. Like when two people are really close to each other, and maybe one is going to express their emotion, their love toward the other person, they will use words that are in slight excess, slight excess to their feelings. It's almost like a glove that is slightly stretched out, but enough so that when you put your hand in it, you can't fill it up. All right? So the reality of what's going on in us is distorted, even by sincere people one to another, by overstating the way that we actually feel. Because we're thinking that other person wants to hear that. That our other person needs to hear that. Or that's what that other person is, is requiring of us in this relationship. Or this is the way, and this is, this is a classic, this is the way I should feel. What? I should feel this way. I should feel these deep emotions. So that's what I'm going to say. Well, that's an overstatement. And we can never fill that. When we overstate stuff like that, you can't fill that because it's not real. And so Paul starts off, he's like, well, if we're going to love, if we're actually going to love each other, we're going to allow the love that's been churning in us, the love of the Father has been churning in us, we want to let that out. We want to love somebody. We want to love the people around us. We have some kind of affection toward those that are around us, those that are in our lives. Well, first and foremost, it's got to be sincere. So it must be. There's a phrase used here. It must be. All right, we're going to look at a. We're going to look at a few verses here. Somebody look at First Peter one seven. First Peter one seven. I'm going to take this out of just one verse. It's all through the New Testament. First Peter one seven. He that comes 
Read it again. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. All right, so as, as Paul started, he speaks of faith and its fruits. And there's something powerful about faith in our lives. As evangelicals, I've talked about this before. As evangelicals, we put a premium on faith. And I was teaching on hope when I was talking about that. We, we look at faith and we're like, faith is it. That's it. Evangelical Christians, like, well, we pick out every verse about faith and we're just going to talk about faith. And is faith important? Absolutely. Is faith key to our relationship with God? Yep. Is faith key to our life in Jesus? Yeah. Is faith key? That verse talks about is like glory, power, everything. I mean, it has it has to do with all that we are in our lives in Christ. Right. Well, what about hope? Well, hope is an important part of that. And hope is spoken of in the Scriptures. Hope, hope is a, a key and foundational part of what it is to be a Christian. Hope is an expectation that we have. Uh, that God is moving, an expectation that, that God has the best for us, an expectation that God is taking care of us. It is something that we need to model. It's something that we need to proclaim. And it's something people need to see. But then you get down to love. And if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you got faith, super important. You got hope, super important. You got love, faith, hope, and love. What's the greatest of those three? Love. All right, so as evangelical Christians, okay, do a little bit of recalculation. Okay, maybe we made a wrong turn and it's recalculating the way we get to where we're going. All right, let it recalculate for a second. The greatest of these, let it, let it recalculate, the greatest of these is love. Did I just say faith wasn't important? Nope. Faith is important. Hope, hope's important. But the greatest of those things, of these basic understandings of who we are in Christ, the greatest of these things is love. And so we get down to here, and I, and I want you to read this next verse, 1 John 3.18. Dear children, let us not love with Children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Thanks. Yeah, this is a this is a key, and and I, I've taken really strong stands on this on Sundays, Mondays, whenever. And that is, talk is cheap. Yeah, talk is cheap, and people say whatever they're going to say. People talk about what they're going to talk, but where we really see and understand our lives together and the love that we have between one another is through the way we're going to actually live. The way we're going to serve and the way we're going to actually have action toward one another. Because like I said, even the sincerest people, they, they are pressured, and I'm not saying by, by God or anything, but within their own minds to even slightly exaggerate their feelings when they express it in words. Right? That's just human tendency. But that creates a situation, that creates a glove that we can never fill. And so what happens with that is that you say it, you say it, you say it, but then you can't do it. 
And that's an insincerity in that, in the sense that then we have no expectation that what somebody says they're actually going to do, right? Even people that care about us. Even people that love us. Even people that sincerely have affection toward us. If they keep overstating what's going on inside of them, they'll never fulfill it. And so it creates a situation where talk is cheap. And we hear these words and we hear these words, but then it doesn't come to pass. And so we just don't believe it after a while. It's almost as if we live in a world where we just don't believe anything. That we just accepted the fact that people talk and they don't mean it. That people say stuff and it's just not true. And that does happen sometimes. And it, and it, and it happens to well-meaning people. It happens to sincere people. It happens to, to anybody. That's why I use that word. Sincere people will overstate things. Well, yeah, they do. But if we're going to see love and we're going to treat one another in love and we're going to live together in love, then love has to be sincere. It has to be real. And like what we just read there in First John, it, it has to be what is the reality of the situation. What's actually happening. That's what it has to be. And I talked about this lots of times, but I didn't grow up in a family. We didn't tell each other we loved each other all the time. For better or for worse. And it wasn't that I didn't know my grandparents loved me. I knew they did. They just didn't tell me that all the time. They did sometimes. And so I didn't grow up learning how to do that. Did they know I loved them? Yeah. Did I know they loved me? Yeah. Did they sacrifice and give of their own resources, time, effort, and lives for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there was never a doubt about it. It just wasn't expressed in certain ways. And so I came out of a, a, a life and a, a family that maybe was all weird on one side of that. And, and so I had to adapt when I got around people that were more expressive in that. Like, cause they expect, cause if somebody says, hey, I love you, alright, they expect you to say that back, right? Right. No, they do, okay? As, as a hint, they do. Yeah, it's like, yeah, and there's something hard about that because Maybe they grew up in a lifestyle where, in a family where people express that all the time and they're really comfortable doing that. But they might be talking to some hardhead that didn't grow up with that and that isn't that comfortable expressing that. And so how do you reconcile it? You reconcile it in truth. That's how you reconcile it. And, and yeah, the hardhead needs to learn how to say it and needs to get more comfortable in being able to express his emotions or her emotions. That's, that's correct. But there needs to be a reconciliation of that in truth. In other words, in fact. What do I mean by fact? In action. There's a reconciliation of all of those things in action. And we need to be a people of action. And not just to talk. Paul talking to the Corinthian church, he said this about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. 
but it's a matter of power. We want it to be a matter of talk because we can talk about anything. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. We can teach about it. We can look up verses about it. We can talk about doing evangelism. We can talk about getting out there and, and doing what needs to be done. We can talk about reaching the world for Jesus. We can talk about uh, what it is. We can talk about raising money to help reach the world for Jesus. We can talk about building mission training centers. We can talk about sending missionaries. We can talk, 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 talk. But the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. That means you got to get to it. And when Paul was talking to the Corinthian church in, in that, that verse there, he was talking about all the teachers that they had that were contradicting him and contradicting the, the doctrine that he had laid down and, and were undermining his authority in that church. Because they could talk. They could talk. And they were convincing people because they could talk and talk a good talk. And, and those people were like following after them instead of Paul. And Paul wrote that letter to him. He's like, yeah, Talk, talk, talk. You can have 10,000, 10,000 people talking at you, but you got one father, meaning spiritual father, meaning himself. Because he lived it. He demonstrated it, and he showed him the power. And there's a power in actually going about and doing something. So, love has to be honest and true. And so there's a few words here, a few big words here. Uh, depending on what version of the Bible you have, one version says that love needs to be without dissimulation. Now, dissimulation is a word, it means to hide, to hide under a false appearance. So love can't be about pretending. All right, dissimulation is to you hide behind or you hide under a false appearance. Yeah, that's not what love is. No matter how slightly false it is. Because <laughs> there's a degree of false. It's just, you know, it's, some things are really, really obviously not right. And other things are kind of close but not quite right. They're both false. And so hiding under that false pretense and that false appearance, that isn't love. Because love is not that. It's honest and true. Another version of the Bible says it's unfeigned. And the word unfeigned means it's not counterfeit. It's just not a counterfeit. Now what's, a, what, what's a good counterfeit? How do you know a good counterfeit? It looks real. It looks real. Right. Yeah, it's not a good counterfeit. Like there used to be these um, these tracks. If you don't know what a track is, that's okay. But they're they're little gospel messages, and they put them on these these bills that look like hundred dollar bills. They didn't really look like that. It's a little bit more like Monopoly money. But people would pick them up because they thought, oh, is it money? And it'd be this Christian track. And I've always found it to to be really effective. To present the gospel after deceiving somebody. It's always been a good, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, so, so counterfeit is, uh, that was just some bonus material. I, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Now, counterfeit is something that looks real, but it's not. 
And a good counterfeit looks more real. It's hard to tell. Uh, and so, and he talks about being honest and true. So it's without dissimulation, although it's not hiding under a false appearance. But it's also unfeigned. It's, it's not counterfeit. And the last word that's used in this, in another uh, translation, is the word hypocrisy. It's without hypocrisy. And the root word for hypocrisy is hiding behind a mask. Hiding behind a mask, and and that, that word is used that was used in Greek theater when characters would change, uh, when actors would change character, they would just change a mask and they would speak from behind a mask and they could be a different character because they had the mask in front of them, and so the mask that was this is the idea of hypocrisy. You're hiding behind a mask so you can pretend to be something that something else, and you're acting. And so you become a different character. But that's not love. And so when he talks about it, it says love must be. I mean, that's an absolute strong statement right there. Love must be. Not can be, not should be, right? Because those are different statements. If you say love can be, that's a different statement than love should be, which is a different statement than love must be. And so here's the statement he makes. Love must be honest and true. And so all of those things, all of those things, and it can't be just a profession of an attachment. It has to be an action. So that's, that's what love is. Now, this kind of love, this kind of affection that he's talking about, now you're going to think I'm, I'm making this up, but I'm not. This is a love that can hate. <laughs> right? You know that? Because he says it right after this. This is a love that can hate. Because he says it's part of love, part of love is to hate evil. That's part of this love. you got to hate evil. And that word there, it talks about, it's one of the basis of our, bases of our, our character is to hate evil. To abhor it. When I use the word abhor, that, that word means to be in horror or disgust of evil. It's an intense hatred of evil. Uh, somebody look at Proverbs All right, if you want a quick and easy definition of the fear of the Lord, go to Proverbs 8.13. A simple definition of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Hate evil. Simple definition. Because what he says here, he tells you, okay, this is what love is. This is what love must be, honest and true. And he says this, this is how it's going to manifest in your life. You're going to hate evil and you are going to hold on to what is good or useful. You're going to hate evil and hold on to what's good. That's what that looks like. And so the idea of holding on, 
And, and again, he doesn't say to do it. He says to hold on to it. All right, now that, if you understand it, would include also participating in it. But the idea behind it is that we cleave to it. We hold on to that which is good. And that word cleave there, that word hold on, uh, that, that's used in some of the translations, it, it's literally the word to glue yourself to it, to adhere yourself to it. As in a glue. Stick yourself to that which is good. To that which is useful. A strong adhesion to good. So this brings up a point, and I'm going to take a moment to talk about this, and then I'll try to summarize what we talked about tonight. The word good, Jesus was asked, you know, he called, he came, a guy came up to Jesus, a young, a young guy came up to Jesus, and he called him good teacher. And Jesus confronted that use of the word. He's like, why do you call me good? And that's a great question. Now, I know Jesus asked it, so of course it's a great question. But that's a great question. Why did he call him good? Because what Jesus was asking this guy is, by what standard did you measure good? And that's what he really wanted to know in that question. And and so what he's confronting in that, that young man was this. He's like, did you just, with all the, the, the knowledge and all the learning and all the things that you have going on in your mind, did you just make a decision based on your knowledge of good and evil that I'm good? Is that how you came up with that? Because I'll tell you, and, and I know I can say this you know, many, many times, and people will hear me say this many, many times, and, but there will be a moment where you're actually going to take a hold of this. I don't know when that's going to be, but it will be a moment. The knowledge of good and evil was the, the, the apprehension of the knowledge of good and evil by Adam and Eve was the original sin of the Bible. It was the original sin. Adam and Eve weren't created to have the knowledge of good and evil. We are not created to have the knowledge of good and evil. Because Jesus answered that young man. He answered his own question. He's like, why do you call me good? Right? And then he, answered, then he said, only God is good. And that's the answer to it. Only God is good. And so if I'm going to begin to think about, okay, what's good? The answer to that question is God. And what do I mean by that? I mean, He's good all the time. He defines good. So His will... His purpose, His plan, defines good. I 
And you might see this as an act of mindless simplicity. I see it as an act of spiritual maturity to agree with that. To just agree with it. God is good. What He does is good. What He says is good. Where He goes is good. Where He sends us is good. It's just good. I have no better definition of that word. None. Because for me to make something up, oh, I think this is good. Well, that puts me in the same category as that young man that approached Jesus that day. And Jesus asked the same question, why do you call me good? Well, because I decided you're good. Well, that young man didn't need to decide that Jesus was good. He didn't need to base his definition of good on his own knowledge of good and evil. Jesus is good because he's Jesus, not because that kid thinks so. And that kid would have to come to a different place in order to see him as good because he is good rather than because he decided he was good. Those are two different things. And if you kind of understand what I'm talking about, good. Because we have to, I believe, and again, I see this as maturity, come to a place where we're just going to agree with God. I don't have a better idea. I don't have a better idea about good. I don't have a better idea about what's good, what's not good, than God. No. And so He defines those things by who He is and by what He says. And that's the only way I know that. You think about the ministry of Jesus. If I were to ask certain questions about Jesus' ministry, or in general, and I'd say, alright, is it good to spit on the ground, make some mud, and smear it on somebody's face? Is that good? Well, Jesus did that and healed the guy. I guess it was good. Well, I don't guess it was good. It was good. But do you understand what I just asked you? Because in most circumstances in your life, if someone were to ask you that question, you would say, no. Because you made a decision based on your knowledge of good and evil, what's good and what's bad. We just missed the healing. Yeah. Or let's say I was to put some saliva on my finger and touch it to somebody's tongue. Is that socially acceptable? No. No. Is it good? Well, Jesus did that. And a guy could speak after that. 
Is it good to carry your son up a mountain, take out a knife, and be ready to plunge it through his chest to, to make him a sacrifice? Uh, that's what Abraham did. Because God said so. And you can argue about that and say, well, he knew he wasn't going to do it. I don't believe that. I think he was fully ready to do it. That's what God honored him in, was that he was fully ready to do that. I've had times in my life where I've done things that you, if you saw me do them, you'd think that is terrible. You're a terrible person. But it was what God said. And I've told you these stories before, and there's more than this. I can only remember a couple of them. But when I used to travel, man, there were times, I remember one, I was in a church service, I punched a guy, some old guy, he was like in his 70s, I punched him right in the stomach, doubled him over, fell over. Like a good shot right to his stomach. I didn't know, but, and, I, and, and the pastor freaked out, but the, the guy had cancer. And it would be weeks later, he'd come back and say, he got cleared completely of the cancer. He got healed. Was that good? Yeah, but at the time, did it look good? No. That's how I lose money when I was on the road. No, seriously. I mean, the guy wouldn't even pay me after that, you know, because I just assaulted somebody in his church. Well, which was more important, though? It was good. And I tell you other stories like that. It was good. So, we have to find ourselves in a place where we let God be good. Yeah. And so, if we're going to hold on to what is good, cleave to it, glue ourselves to it, you're going to cleave and hold on to it and glue yourself to God. And you're just going to hate everything else. Everything is just not God. That's it. No, I don't need that. That puts us in a position for His love that He first loved us with to begin to pour out of us. And everything I'm talking to you about tonight has to do with positioning yourself for that to happen. I mean, I could give you a five-step plan to implement this in your life, but that's not really what he's saying. All right, I gave you a three-step, you know, abbreviated plan, you know, to, to do it because we can't make it through five steps. So we get the three-step abbreviated plan to implement this in our life, but that's not really what he's talking about. What he's talking about is finding ourselves in a place of just gluing ourselves to God, hating everything else that's not him, and watching that love just begin to pour out of us into each other's lives. I can't make that happen. I can't force that. I can't somehow recruit it. It just it needs to happen as an outgrowth of something natural in me, of supernatural in me. It has to happen as an outgrowth, as something instinctual that God puts into me and I allow that to just flow through me. It's not me making a decision necessarily to do that. It's me allowing 
something that God is doing in me to flow from me. I don't think it's any mistake he used the, the whole picture of just the idea of the affection of an animal toward its young. Because it's just instinctual, it's DNA, it's who they are, and they take care of their young. Most animals do. And so because of that, they will protect their young, they'll fight for their young, they'll feed their young. They do all those things instinctually. They don't go to school for that. Right? They don't, they don't have any way to learn that. That comes out of their DNA. Well, I think God wants to fundamentally change our DNA to that. To the way He created us to be. We've got to position ourselves for that to actually happen through us. Let's take a moment and pray and respond. Just allow the Holy Spirit to do what He wants to do. There's no reason to complicate our relationship with God. There's a simplicity to it because He created us. He created us the way He wanted us in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were created and that's what God wanted. And so there's something in us that is that. There is something in us that's that. And as we allow for the corruption to leave and for that, that DNA to be restored in us, there's a natural outflow of what God intended through our lives. There's no reason to complicate that. So, Heavenly Father, I pray a simplicity over our minds tonight and over our hearts. That we just, yeah, we want you to flow through us. And so I pray, God, that each of us could position ourselves in such a way. Just put ourselves in the right spot, in the right place to allow for this to happen in and through us. Because God, I pray for that kind of affection to flow. That kind of love to flow. That kind of love that must be true, sincere. It must be real. It must be. So I just ask that instead of trying to force something or make something happen in our own will or strength, we'll find a rest in trusting you. So I just ask you to have your way. Have your way in me tonight. Have your way. Something true, something real. I just want to find myself just glued to you, God. Just holding on, adhered to what is good, and that's you. I want to be stuck to you. Stuck to you so hard and so deeply that everything else doesn't matter. That is 
kehidupan. Let your love flow, God. Let your love flow. Let your affection flow. Let your caring flow. We receive you tonight. I pray you do your work. Flow, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. So we're by saying amen. Amen. Good to see everybody tonight. Thanks for coming. And we'll see you again. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool. You mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.